Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. Amen. Second Kings chapter 20, and we're going to try to do two chapters tonight. So buckle up, and we'll get through uh, Ahaz and his su- successor, um, we will, it, it reads like this, verse one, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I've walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and has done, have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. We've seen in chapter 19, Hezekiah at his best. We've seen Hezekiah take on, in faith, take on the visual flesh image of 185,000 soldiers with one little town left in the empire and still trusting in the Lord. Um, at, in this chapter, we're going to see that um, we have some different sides to Hezekiah. He's a human being, uh, and he's not the Messiah. So... I, I, this idea that God can take out 185,000 people in one night, you'd think Hezekiah would just have it all right, that he's had this mountaintop experience, that everything else is smooth sailing from there. I think sometimes in the walk of faith, it's healthy for us to look at when, when people have different sides to them. Um, and so we walk through those. Verse 1, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Unless you're Enoch, Elijah, or Jesus, we die. And so we have this idea that, like, we should somehow live forever, and we just don't. Humanity has a limit, because frankly, if God didn't put a limit on our life, we'd do even more evil, right? So we all have these limits. And I think the grayer you get, the more you get tuned into that idea that your body starts to give away and fall apart, and you're getting closer to death. Here's Hezekiah. He's lived an amazing life of faith. He's walked the walk the whole time. Um, and there's this idea that he too is going to die. It, the other piece in the Old Testament, don't miss this, is when you're talking about messianic promises, the way Kings keeps coming back to, and this one died, and this one died, and this one died, it's because the promise to David is that Messiah would live forever and reign eternally, and there would be no death with the Messiah. So every time we see a king that's even a good king that passes away, Kings makes that point that this one dies too. But A small story before we get there. God says, set your house in order. (laughs) This is an amazing kindness that most of us don't get. Most of us don't know when we're going to die. And in that, we kind of have to live our life with our house in order so that we're ready to go. And Hezekiah gets this wonderful gift to say, set your house in order. This sickness that you have, you're going to die from it. So you should say your goodbyes and say farewell to people. And so there's a certain grace that God's giving here. And then in verse two and three, you get this kind of amazing prayer for Hezekiah. We've seen a lot of prayers in the Old Testament. You're going to see more in the New Testament. Part of the fun of looking at prayers in the scriptures is that these prayers look really different um, in each one of these things. We get here too this kind of different prayer, and it's a bitter prayer at the end of verse three. He wept bitterly when he prayed it. 
sometimes people feel like when they get mad at God or frustrated with God or angry with God that he somehow it's wrong to pray with that kind of a heart. And I think we see examples from a man of faith. It's already been established in chapter 19. Hezekiah is a man of faith, but he also prays to God honestly. And I think God would rather have an honest prayer than a fake prayer. In fact, he kind of hates hypocrisy. So when you're frustrated with God, upset with God, bitter about something, bringing that to God is also a, a holy thing. And I think we see kind of three different elements of Hezekiah. And one is that he has this great faith against an enemy at his gate. When somebody's attacking you, it's, it's almost easier to have the right kind of disposition there. Second story, we see him having a great faith in his despair, verses 2 and 3. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that where he falls short is when the enemy comes with graciousness and tries to be buddy-buddy with him. So where he succeeds in adversity and he succeeds in despair, he fails when it comes to compromising with the enemy. And so Hezekiah just becomes a model of that. He prays with his face to the wall. Grant mentioned this this morning. Throughout the prayer, we see different body positions for prayer. The Bible does not exclaim that one is better than the other or one is somehow more important than the other. The position of prayer seems to be something that the Bible gives us lots of examples on. The prayer itself. It might sound selfish for Hezekiah to be praying for himself and to do so in kind of a bitter place. He's on his deathbed, and Hezekiah is making this deathbed protest to God. It sounds selfish at one level. Um, And let me emphasize here, God can handle these kinds of prayers. God loves our ugly. But in the same way that Hezekiah laid out the scroll of that nasty letter and put it on the altar, put it on the stairs of the temple and said, God, you take this. I think he's doing the same thing here. He's putting his frustration and putting it out before God saying, God, you take this. I don't want it on my heart. Um, Hezekiah does this idea of spreading his external issues before God. And here he's taking his internal issues to God. And, And you guys, I've talked to a number of you. There are people in this room. We got internal issues. And we come from different places. We're wrestling with different things, struggling with sin, struggling with having the right heart. And to take those things and say, God, I just don't have the right attitude or heart right now. You have to change me. And you have to do a work on the inside. Hezekiah does a few things right in this kind of prayer. And I want to break it down and then we'll move a lot faster through the rest of the chapter. Number one, verse three says, remember now. He's asking God to keep his end of the bargain. So when God makes a promise and it looks like the promise isn't getting kept, it is okay to go to God and say, God, you made a promise here. You need to keep it. In that sense, I think God's not going to be shown to be unjust or unfair. He made a covenant with David's family. And as Hezekiah prays this, as far as we know, he doesn't have an heir. There's no son to take the throne. So God made a promise for a a Messiah to come through the line of David. And we are at the moment where not only are the people of Israel at threat of being extinguished, but the kingship is about to be extinguished. So if God says, make your arrangements, you're about to die, he's basically saying there won't be a king, which is an odd situation. Here's the promise, Deuteronomy 28. It shall come to pass if you hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord thy God and observe to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come to thee and overtake thee. I love this verse. God's saying to Israel, if you keep the promises, if you do it the way I'm asking you to, I will, you will be overwhelmed with the blessings I'm going to throw on you as a nation. 
Now, one thing we can try to personalize that, and I would encourage you to take it with a grain of salt. He made that promise to a nation, but Hezekiah is the king of that nation. And he's going, God saying, you promised this and we've done everything. He took down the high places. He got rid of the prostitution stuff. He did everything to clean up the nation that a king could do. And now he's about to die. And, and it doesn't seem like that's right. It doesn't seem that it's just. It feels to Hezekiah like God's not keeping his promises. And you've heard me say, God's not going to be a debtor to a human being. God's not going to do, be the part of the covenant that gets broken. It's always the humans that do the breaking. So with other humans, God asks us to let go of our bitterness and give it to him. But when we're bitter with God himself, he asks us to bring it to him. Go straight to God and say, I'm upset. I don't see, this doesn't seem fair to me. Why is my heart so screwed up when you said you'd do something new in my heart? Help get that alignment. Be in the word, be in prayer and bring those things to God. I think sometimes God waits for us to bring our problems to him before the solution starts to show up. We see a lot of examples of that in the Bible. Sometimes the solution is well on its way before the prayer even happened, but God knew the prayer was going to happen, so he starts to send the help. If we know the promises of God, they are there for us to pray with. So point number one, he says, remember. And so Hezekiah is calling to God's attention the promises that God made. He can't do that if he doesn't know the word. If you don't know what promises God has made to you, you can't pray the promises back at God. So learning the word becomes part of it. And number two, he says, oh Lord. I think in this kind of a prayer, Hezekiah never crosses the line of disrespect or haughtiness. It's one thing to come to God and pray in that with, a, with a bitterness, with an issue. It's another thing to cross the line and be disrespectful to God when you do that. And I think that especially in our culture that's really self-centered, sometimes we forget to retain reverence even when we're bringing a concern and an issue before God. So he asks, he asks with remembering, holding God to his promises, he says, O Lord, giving the proper title, the proper respect. And then, and then the third thing, I have walked before you in truth. I've done my part of the covenant. You can't pray that with a clear conscience unless you've done that. So if you're living in sin and you're keeping little pieces of sin in your life and you think you can bring something to God, you have to be able to do that with somewhat of a clear conscience. God, I'm doing everything I can do under your law. And it's not that you're saved by your works, but if you want to bring an issue to God, you should be at least trying to do your part of that arrangement before you start holding God accountable for his part. I've walked before you in truth. There is such a thing in the Bible as living under God's law doing things God's way. There is a righteousness that comes with a clear conscience. That doesn't mean that we are not sinners. We're sinners by nature. But there is a lifestyle that, that gives us a freedom from sin's claim on us. So when you get the sin out of your life, you start to watch your spiritual life explode. But people that cling to their sins can't pray these kinds of prayer. God actually expects us to do the best we can to get rid of sin in our life. Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If we're to be the people of God, we're supposed to live like it. And it's a command that we do that. Samuel, I, Samuel prayed the same kind of prayer. I've walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Samuel, with a clear conscience, could say, I have walked the path you wanted me to walk. Hezekiah does the same thing. So one, he says to remember, 
Remember the promises you've made God? Two, he keeps his respect and honor for God by using the right title and treating him in that way. Three, he can say, I've walked, I've done my part to walk in truth. He doesn't claim he's perfect or sinless. He just says, I've done, I've done my best. Number four, a loyal heart with truth and with a loyal heart. Hezekiah has endured challenges. We've seen that. He's gone through some tough times and he stayed loyal to the Lord in moments and times where a lot of us would have folded. He stayed loyal to the Lord unto the belief that he's going to be overwhelmed by Assyria and actually encouraged and went around and got other people to do the same thing. David's the only guy that could kind of say the same thing about his heart. 1 Kings 3.6 He walked before God in truth, in righteousness, and in the uprightness of heart. Again, we can't, we can't hope to be sinless. We've probably already blown that. But we can hope to be holy. And if God's given us a path to forgiveness, we can actually hope to be blameless before God. Because we've gotten to that blamelessness, his path and his direction. Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, we can be washed clean so we can actually stand before an almighty God. Think of that like theology itself. To go before God and just say, I I did what you asked me to do. And to be able to say that with a clear heart, there's nothing better in the world than being able to say that with a clear heart. Number five, I've done what was good. Not only is he doing it in truth and with the right heart, he's actually done good. He's heard it and he's done it. Jesus was tempted, but he did the right thing. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to do the wrong thing. So the saints have faults, as we're going to see in this chapter, Hezekiah has faults, but they do good as they can and as they're able to and under whatever God's given them responsibility for. Do the right thing. 1 Peter 1.15, it doesn't change in the New Testament. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because our hearts are forever sinful and will lead us astray. Our conduct we have much more control over. To think one thing but to do the right thing, God looks at the actions in addition to our hearts. Biblically, we can be corrupted, um, but God provides a way to make amends for that and then do it. He says, Jesus says, sin no more. Move forward and do that. So Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Another, if Hezekiah is saying, I've done what's good, part of that is his testimony. Because I've done what God's asked me to do, if I die at a young age, what does that say to all of Israel, God? Because you promised that you would bless kings that did your thing. And you got this nation that's on the verge of idolatry. They're going to just think, what's the point of Yahweh? He doesn't even bless Hezekiah. 55 times in the New Testament, it asks us to do good works, to actually do things. And I think we live in a church era today where we think it's all about what we believe, and it doesn't have anything to do with our actions. And the Bible doesn't present that at all. It connects our beliefs with our actions, is that the actions show what we believe much better than our, th- our words do. If you believe it, then do it. And we've, we've come from there. I think a works-based theology can mess people up because we don't get saved by our works. But the Bible does say that when you believe and when you are saved, it should affect how you behave in the world. And that's true in the Old Testament too. Revelation twenty two eleven: He who is unjust, let him be unjust. He who is filthy, let him be filthy. He who is righteous, let him be righteous. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Do you know that was in Revelation? 
that I just think that's beautiful. Like God's like, what's in your heart, then make it be what you do. So people can see who you are. So Hezekiah says, God, I'm doing my part. Please remember to do yours. Number six, he says, in your sight. (laughs) Doing good is worthless if it's our opinion of good. That's just what everybody does. Everybody does what they think is right in their own eyes. When Hezekiah prays, he's able to see to do what was good in your sight. That the definition of good comes from God. So unlike the godless that just do what they think is good, we do, we do what we think God wants us to do. It's very different. So Hezekiah is able to go before God, not on his own terms, which is sinful, but he goes before God on God's terms. I've lived under your law. And he's doing so without an heir. So you can say, yeah, but if he gets a little extra time on earth, he's going to give birth to Manasseh. But I don't think that's Hezekiah's concern right now. The concern of Hezekiah is God's promises, which is why he weeps bitterly. This is the end of Jewishness. This is the end of Yahweh. If all his followers are dead, like Assyria wipes them out, that can be a real, I mean, that's the end of all of it. So the word bitterly there, it's two words. (laughs) Um, So we see an emphasis that we see in the Hebrew a lot. So it's in the translation is baka baka gadal, which the literal translation of the bitterness there is to weep, weep sorely, to weep until you hurt. And anytime we see Hebrew doubling up a word like that, baka baka, that's just their exclamation point. This is thick exclamation point weeping to the point of pain. Like it hurts to cry that much. Have you ever cried that hard? Where at some point it physically hurts you to be crying that hard. I got a few nodding heads in the room. That's how, I mean, he's just, this is devastating to him. Not only is his world about to end, but the world of Yahweh is about to end. There's no air. He feels forsaken. And I think it's okay for us to realize the Bible has characters that feel utterly abandoned and forsaken. And that that is a real thing that even believers go through those journeys and those paths. They're not fun to go through. He also gives a solution, like you have brothers and sisters in the church, start talking to them. Don't make it solo. And when Hezekiah does this and the prayer is recorded, you'd think he's praying this in the temple amongst the brothers and the priests who then write down the prayer. Or Hezekiah shared the prayer with somebody or it wouldn't be in our Bible. So I think there's an unspoken number seven there, which is that he's doing this with his brothers and bringing this prayer there. So many people in the world accept that humans die but I got to tell you, the idea of dying, and this is part of what he's bitter about, dying sucks. Like, let's just be honest about it. There's nothing fun about death, getting old, watching our bodies go away. And we can rail against death and even hate death. Like, I don't like death. It's not fair. Like, I have a soul that wants to live eternally, but I got a body that can't quite do that. Doesn't that seem like a disconnect? Why do we have eternal souls in temporary bodies? And I think this idea that Hezekiah is just kind of saying, like, this is horrible, he's agreeing with God. Remember in Genesis, death was the curse? Now that you've eaten from the tree of good and evil, like, there's death is going to be, it has to be part of what happens with humanity. So the solution to that is actually a Jesus Christ that promises us that we don't have to die. Hezekiah doesn't have that promise in front of him. He doesn't have the promise of Christ in front of him. To him, death may just mean death. There's huge groups of Jewish people that believe death is just death. So so it's, it's a tragedy, and to rail against death, I think, is a very Christian thing to do. 
the closer we get to our eternal selves, the more we hate the idea of death. It is a curse. It's horrible. It's horrible to say goodbye to loved ones. It's horrible to have to be the one that dies. Like, I can't imagine that's fun. I haven't been there yet. It wouldn't be an enjoyable thing. It's okay to hate death. It's okay to be bitter against it. I don't think there's any sin in what Hezekiah is doing here. And we have it as a role model of just bringing that to the Lord. Psalm 118, 17, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. There's even the songwriters have this idea of eternity and it's written on our hearts. There's something wrong with death and there's something right about life. Speaking of sacrifice, Jesus makes a promise. And again, if we don't know the promises, we can't pray them. Here's a prayer. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. That's the promise of Christ. Christ, you promised we wouldn't have to die. In the New Testament, a lot of the writers start talking about sleeping because Jesus modeled that for us. They're not dead, they're just sleeping. And so Jesus gives us a different perspective on death that we're not going to die, we're just going to wake up in the twinkling of an eye, that we may rest for a while and he's going to bring us back. God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. So there's a promise that there's more to life than just the carnal one that we experience right now. And you may say, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I can't see that and I can't touch it. So I don't know if I can believe it. And we had that experience. We went to the Grand Canyon this week and there's a blizzard and a snowstorm. So we get to the railing of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been here? So we're at the railing and all we can see in front of us is white. Completely blizzard thing, and we're all just we're the Minnesotans at the Grand Canyon, right? We're all out there in our parkas, like enduring it, getting ice off my beard. And we're looking out, and it's kind of fun because we're taking pictures of nothing. And and Steph even drew in her journal a railing with nothing. <laughs> and that was our thought of boy, we came all the way to Arizona and we got to see nothing. And I was convinced that the Grand Canyon was a hoax. I can't see it. Everybody says it's there, but I can't. We've now come to the location, and I see nothing. And I think that's something, when we look at eternal life, it's a lot like that. Whoa. We're there, and we can't see it, but we know it's there. We've heard it's there. You've had people that attest that oh, I had a near-death experience, and, I, you know, and I, there's something after this life. We've got millions and thousands of people that believe in the eternal because there's something in their hearts that's changed when they've built a relationship with Jesus. We change when we follow Jesus. And we don't quite know how that happens. But you try to tell other people about that and all they see is the white nothing. And, it, and at some level, that should also be kind of a curse that we weep bitterly about. There are people that simply, if they can't see the Grand Canyon, then darn it, they don't believe it's there. And I, you know, even Katie was like, but dad, can't you tell there's nothing in front of us? And I'm like, yes, I can tell there's nothing in front of us. But people say there's such a thing as a Grand Canyon. And I, if I don't see it, I just don't believe in it. And so it, luckily we went back the next day and it was a little clearer. I'm now convinced there's a Grand Canyon. It actually exists. I'm glad I could see it with my own eyes. Um, but I wasn't about to take on faith that there's just a mile deep hole in the ground somewhere on the planet. But now I've seen it. So I believe that it's there. Some of you may not have been to the Grand Canyon. Most of you didn't raise your hand. But how do you know it actually exists? You can trust the people that have been there and can testify to it, or you can go there yourself. Same thing with the afterlife. Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. 
if we have to die, we're just going to sleep for a while. And then God's got his like Jesus trumpet alarm. He's going to wake us up with trumpets and we'll be there for the final action. That's kind of nice. Like watching a movie and you're bored and you just want to see the end of the movie. So you take a little nap through the second act and you wake up for the good part at the end. That's what death is for Christians. We don't mourn like the rest of the world mourns. We mourn differently than the world. Verse 4. I told you I was going to take more time with those three. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court. So Isaiah is like told to go in as a prophet and tell Hezekiah he's going to die. He delivers his message. He leaves. And on the way out, the word of the Lord came to him saying, verse 5, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord. That would have been the best moment in Isaiah's life. Like, I just had to go in and give bad news to him, and then I come out and God's like, ah, turn around and go back. We got another message. What a much better message to deliver. Verse 5, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. Reference to the messianic prophecies right there. I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. And on the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Amen. Thank you, God. That's more than just an encouraging word or two. He gets an extra 15 years. It looks like the enemy wins all the time. It looks like Assyria is going to overwhelm them. They don't. It looks like Hezekiah is going to die, that he's doomed to this death. And God says, no, I hold life and death in my hand. I own that. He says, here's the encouragement. I've heard your prayer. I think when your heart is bitter and forlorn and desperate, to just know God hears you. What a blessing. Anxiety builds up and God's like, I hear what you're saying. And honestly, that the, just God hearing it doesn't solve a thing, but it sure is nice to know God actually knows what's going on. I've heard your prayer. God doesn't say that he, he hears the prayer. He doesn't claim that he's hearing other parts. It's amazing how God expects us to pray. If we don't pray, there's nothing there to be heard. But when we address God, he hears what we're doing. I've seen your tears. That has nothing to do with prayer. Not only does he hear us, but he sees what's going on too. God hears and he sees, and he sees specifically the heart that's coming from a righteous heart, a pure heart, a heart that wants to see God's promises. And then I can't go past the on the third day thing, like pretty obvious, right? That's like for us Jesus people, that's kind of on the nose when you see that. On the third day, (laughs) you shall go up. It looks like death for three days, but ah, then life is going to return. So again, we see just these very familiar things that in the Old Testament they had. I think they're writing that down because God said it, not because they even had an idea that that was an image of what's going to happen later. If you don't see that it's on the nose, I'll say it for the obvious. Jesus was in the grave for three days, and on the third day he rose again. So we have this image of God returning life. Hezekiah's bitterness is a holy precursor to the idea that death is horrible and that God's going to beat death. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 15, 50, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed. We're going to have a new life, and it'll be a different life. 
we see a number of laments in the Old Testament. Um, note we don't see a lot of laments in the New Testament. A, a, a lament was this pouring out of a heart of just being overwhelmed with the curse of this life. And in the New Testament, we just don't see that. Um, we are told why that's the case in 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. But now it is made manifest. We can now see that by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The reason we don't lament anymore is because Christ has given us a reason not to. But it doesn't mean we don't get hearts that get anxious and upset and sad and depressed. It does mean that we have a greater hope than they had in the Old Testament. Verse 6, I will add to your days 15 years. So that's a promise in the flesh. It isn't a promise that Hezekiah won't die because that, die, that death is a curse that comes all the way from Genesis. But God does orchestrate a moment here. And I think this is interesting. He's building faith in Hezekiah. And chronologically, most people believe this event happened before the Assyria situation. So again, chronology doesn't always matter in the Old Testament to the writers. But this kind of faith situation, the idea that Hezekiah is going to be at the verge of death, but he will live, is going to be a great faith builder for when it looks like Jerusalem is at the verge of death and he's going to give them more time. And so this city idea is, is going to be there. And it's referenced in this promise. If God can save Hezekiah, he can also save Jerusalem. So you wonder why Hezekiah doesn't lose faith in the Assyria situation. It's because he's been through tough times. If that's a principle, then we can also go through tough times as an individual, which strengthens us to deal with bigger situations down the road. And I think some of those bigger situations are simple act of ministry. If you get through hard times as a believer, you're better equipped to help new believers go through hard times because you've been there. You've walked that walk. And trust me, the Lord will bring people into your life that you can, as you mature and get through trials and tribulations, you will have opportunities to minister to other people in the body and you can share with them. God does it for his own sake. I think this is a foundation of why God responded to Assyria's pride. Like they challenged God, so God's going to deal with them. But he does it for his servant David. Again, this is like a love letter. God adored David. And he made this promise of Messiah through David. And again and again and again, all of the Old Testament keeps pointing to Christ. God made a promise. He's reminding of that promise. And we do that. So that when Christ comes, we don't have to fear death anymore. And this story is intimately connected to that. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. New hope. Verse 1 says, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. And then he says you're going to get 15 more years. I just want to point out, this is still true. Hezekiah does still die. And he does still have the obligation to put his house in order. So what God says in verse 1 isn't countered by what he says. In, it, he doesn't contradict himself here. He doesn't say when he's going to die in verse 1. He just says he is going to die. And that actually happens. Hezekiah does die. Getting his house in order is really important because setting the house in order helps them fight the battle against the enemy that's coming down the road. What's interesting to me is why the writers put this story after that story. And I think one of the ideas here is that we got to see all the blessings of Hezekiah, and now we're seeing some of the trials that he went through to get there. And that God maybe divides our life up that way too. And so we're looking at this. Verse 7, then, Hezekiah, then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil and he recovered, which makes you think, what kind of boil did he have? 
like a boil that's going to kill you. So yes, in the ancient world, there were some nasty boils. And if you go online and look up boils, it is not safe for work because you will get some disgusting images. So up on the screen here, I'm going to, no, I won't. <laughs> we know today, despite the many health benefits of figs, we've done a lot of research on figs. Figs do have medicinal qualities. However, healing the boil is not one of them. Like, you don't just put food on your boil and have it go away. So it's an interesting thing that God has Isaiah using figs. Why? Why would he use something that has nothing to do with healing boils? I would expect that figs are going to be, through the history of the Bible, an image of life and hope. And that when you see a fig tree with leaves on it, you think to yourself, oh, there's nourishment on that fig tree. And I'm going to go there because figs give life. And when God sets an image in the Old Testament, there's usually a purpose in that. And you all know where I'm going with this if you've been to the morning teaching. What kind of tree does Jesus curse? A fig tree. A fig tree. He curses it because that tree is supposed to be an image of life, because it is with Hezekiah, that bears fruit for life. And he cursed it because it had the show of life, but it didn't have the fruit under the leaves. So Jesus curses it. It wasn't doing what it was called to do. So we see in the Old Testament, we get some of these images that are set up. Figs are set up in this passage. Judges 9, all the trees, there's that parable with all the trees, and the fig tree is asked to rule over the other trees. Remember this? And the fig tree refuses to because he's too busy giving life and nourishment to people. He's too sweet and good to waste his time with politics. So we get this image from Judges. The fig tree's a good thing. 1 Kings 4.25, we have a hope of peace. Um, it, the hope of peace for Israel is that they can each eat from their own fig tree. So we see this image of the fig tree popping up now as kind of a pattern in the Old Testament, that it's an image of life, nourishment, and peace, which is what we aspire to as followers of God. Follow God, we expect peace. We want nourishment. And the reward of Israel, if they do the right thing, is they'll each have their own fig tree. And that's kind of that promise. So when you get to Jesus, it makes that a really striking image when he says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Like there's this idea that Jesus is just absolutely abhorred at this tree that doesn't do what it was made to do. And we got to see fig trees in Arizona, which was kind of fun. And there were figs on the fig tree. There were leaves and stuff goes, there's leaves, but there's no fruit. And it's like, ah, 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 and they were tiny, but they were all over when you looked in the upper branches. There were tons of them. So I really was in the botanical garden, so I felt like this wasn't appropriate, but I wanted to shake the tree and get figs down. But we did not do that because that would have chased us down, and there would have been yelling and screaming in the park. Verse 8, And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What's the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I should go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Again, the third day gets reemphasized. Then Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backwards 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees, but no, let the shadow go backward 10, 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So this is a miracle. And we've talked, we've gone through miracles in the Old Testament. Here's what I think is cool here. Ezekiah actually asks for confirmation. Sometimes we think that if we're believers, we should just trust all that. And, and I think it's interesting that some of the heroes of the Bible, they actually ask God for confirmation. Give me a sign. 
Help me to see what I don't see right now. And as we're trying to adjust our lives to be more godly, there's nothing wrong with taking a little step and letting the Lord respond to it. Like, Lord, I know I got to get this stuff straight in my life. I'm going to take this far of a step. Can you show me I'm going the right way? The priests, when they're bringing the ark across the river, had to put their feet in the water before God stopped the waters up. Little tests and showing that's true. And judges, we saw the same kind of thing. Um, and again, you can read those things as a negative. Well, they had a lack of faith, so they asked for confirmation. Yet I don't see anything in this passage that says Hezekiah is doing the wrong thing. In fact, God responds to him with this wonderful offer. Do you want me to make time go forward or backward? Like he gives him a time machine. That's a pretty positive response from the Lord. So he goes to go to the house of the Lord. And the, the idea there that I shall go to the house of the Lord. You can't go to the house of the Lord when you're sick. So one of the conditions of the, the temple was that if you had some disease or a boil on your flesh, you weren't supposed to bring contagious things into the temple area. So you were, you were, you were not supposed to do that. But when you went through the purification rituals, you could then go up to the house of the Lord when things had cleared up and gone away. So Hezekiah is basically saying, how long till I can go back to the temple and worship? Which indicates that Isaiah is coming to him and they're having these conversations with God outside the temple. So the idea that the only place God existed was in the temple is a mistaken reading of the Old Testament because God's dealing with Hezekiah and Isaiah and they're nowhere near the temple because he's got a giant boil on him. Make sense? All right. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign even when he's invited to by God. Hezekiah asks for a sign even though he's not invited by God. Which one's the more righteous? Hezekiah is. So asking God for a sign, I just want to argue, God gives this in love. He's not obligated to dance for Hezekiah. He doesn't, he's not a puppet that Hezekiah gets to manipulate on little strings. He does this because he loves to. God wants to demonstrate and assure us that walking righteously is something he desires from us. So he loves to see when people do those things. He loves to alleviate that anxiety by us taking tiny steps in his direction. Verse 10, Hezekiah points out that reversing time would be a miracle. <laughs> um, but going forward fast would be a miracle too. So he asked for God to reverse the clock, which is, of course, impossible in the natural world. It requires an act of God. I've read passages that talk about the earth being shifted on its axis and rotational things, but I got lost about halfway through it, and it's been a while. I have no problem understanding the Bible creates the idea that God, the creator, can adjust things the way he sees fit. And so stopping the clock here would not send us flying into space at 10,000 miles an hour. There's a, you know, there's this idea that if God wants to move things or change things, he can. And he can do those kinds of things. So if you believe in the beginning God, then this miracle would fit right into there. There is no naturalistic explanation of this, though I've seen believers try really hard. There simply is no, I, no way in which the sun and the moon's rotation would change um, unless the creator God held everything intact while he did some of those things. Um, so we clearly have an example of a miracle here. We're being told this story on, on faith. They saw it. Here's the interesting thing. Part of why I think Babylon shows up is because this event was known and it happened only in Israel. So there's a, adding to the miracle just a little bit of a layer. Um, we've seen Hezekiah's faith. We've seen his prayers. We've seen his courage. We've seen his friendship with Isaiah, a brother. 
and we've seen all the good, and the next story we're going to get is that Hezekiah makes kind of a huge mistake. I think he almost makes this mistake with a, a good heart, but not a wise heart. And so it's a really tough kind of thing to unpack. Verse 6, David's promise is the Christ, and up to this point, Hezekiah is blameless, right? In verse 3, like we can see the blamelessness there. I think it's important for the writers of Kings that in this extension of life, we get another story that shows his pride. And of course, Manasseh is born, in which he is not well-parented. So two major flaws of Hezekiah, his pride, kind of his foolish desire to compromise, but also he did not parent his son in the ways of the Lord. And so he fails in those two areas. Um, From the writer of Kings, and as we've gone through here, we always get kind of a summary of each king. I think it's important to note that because of these two mistakes, it is undeniable that Hezekiah is, we cannot say that he's the Messiah because he's not eternal. He does die. Um, Even though there's little tastes and flavors of Christ here, Hezekiah is not the Christ. And so as we keep searching for Messiah through the Old Testament, I think these stories become important. So here it is. Verse 12. At that time... Barodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, silver and gold, the spices, precious ointment, and all of his armory, and all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So first of all, the order of events. One reading is that this all happened before Assyria attacked, right? Another reading is that, well then, because he gave all of those treasures away to Assyria to try to get them to not attack. So how did these treasures get back in the treasure room? An answer to that question is when he gave all those treasures, they didn't just FedEx them back to Nineveh. They, they kept them with the army. So when 185,000 people died outside the city, guess what was sitting in the captain's tent? All of the treasures that had been given away. So those things went right back in. So if you want to read this as chronological order, I think there's still room to do that. Um, I wouldn't lose my faith over what order the stories happened in. That seems like an odd thing to pick a battle bomb. But you know, with when you go through commentaries, that seems to be where people focus. Sends them to the king of Babylon. If you should know in Babylon, they worship the sun. They worship the sun because it's cyclical. And we'll get into Babylonian religion as we hit Babylon. For this story, I think it's important that the last miracle was messing with the sun. That would get the attention of people that worshiped the sun. And so Babylon sends a diplomatic um, envoy. They want allies. Um, Joseph in the Antiquities writes that the whole purpose of this visit was Babylon was getting ready to crush Assyria and they wanted to have allies. Who better to pick as an ally as the people that just wiped out 185,000 Assyrians? If you're a rising power in the Middle East and this single city beat the entire Assyrian army, wouldn't you want to send an envoy to their house and just say, hey, we just want to be on your side? Um, So this envoy is there. It's a false show. Babylon clearly has aspirations and they will later on take advantage of this. Um, Basically, Hezekiah assumes that Babylon means well. Non-Yahweh-following people would be who God defines as the goy, the enemy, the, the pagans. So he assumes that this pagan group, well, they're fairly nice folks, but they're nice because they want something. And until they 
they can get what they want or just take it for themselves, Babylon will turn on a dime and actually and absolutely wipe out Judah. Um, but at this point in time, they're they're being nice. Um, they had a lesson to walk away from this. Verse thirteen. And Hezekiah was an attentive. That's an odd word, right? In the Hebrew, it's impressed or pleased. He was taken in by their charms. They send these diplomats. And as a nation, if you want to send diplomats, you send the nicest people you can. Unless you're a Syrian, you want to terrify people, then you send the Rabshakeh. But Babylon doesn't send the enemy to curse and bring terror. Babylon sends the envoy that's an ambassador of niceness. They send the friendliest person they can find. But they're both enemy nations of Israel. And so we see another side to the enemy here. It's not the side that comes at you brutally and attacking and mean and nasty. It's the side that comes in the, in the guise of a friendship. So Hezekiah was attentive. He was pleased by them. Um, he easily resists the enemy when they're defying Yahweh. It's not so easy to resist a flatterer or somebody that comes with kindness. Shows them all the house. This is the sin. He wants to impress them, so he shows them everything. And this is one of those kinds of, I think, a tough thing. There's a story about when Apple Computer was just a small little company, and they got, just as upstart computer makers, they got to visit the mighty Xerox company. So they go in, and they take a tour of Xerox, and they're just helping these young punk startups kind of get to know people in the industry. And Apple looks around and goes down to their R&D department, and they have visual interface that they're working on. They have point and click with a mouse technology developed. And they're like, wow, when is this all going to hit the market? And Xerox is like, ah, we're just playing around with stuff down here. We don't, we're not going to any, do anything with it. Could we look inside that mouse and see what? Sure, help yourself. So they're taking pictures of everything. And Apple goes from just making like Commodore 64 stones computers to a year later, they come out with what they call the Mac which has a screen, which has clickable folders on it. They stole everything from Xerox. This is what Babylon's doing. What did you guys do to wipe out Assyria? Can we look inside how you tick? If Hezekiah did this right, what should he have shown them? Nothing. Maybe I would give you another suggestion. He should have shown them the temple. This is God's house. He should have shown them the law. This is God's law. He should have shown, but he didn't. He showed him all his wealth, his dominion, his power. And so this beautiful opportunity to point these people to Yahweh is wasted. Or he could have shown them nothing. Like, you guys are the enemy. I don't need to show you, like, show a greedy person what you have in your storehouse. That's a bad idea because they start dreaming about how to take it. Verse 14, then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Again, God's people often ask questions like this. So Hezekiah said, they came from a far country from Babylon. Isaiah isn't uh, tuned into politics, clearly. Um, now he has uh, a name for himself. We don't see Amos added to the end of it because Isaiah has given and fulfilled prophecies. At this point, Isaiah is his own guy. Um, Hezekiah, basically they came from this place called Babylon, this far country that they hadn't really heard much of. And clearly Isaiah is asking questions that I think he knows the answer to because God told him to go ask these questions. But God often asks the question to draw out what's going on in the heart. Verse 15, and he said, what have they seen in your house? So Isaiah knows that 
something is going, what did you show them exactly? And Hezekiah answered, and again, I, there's no remorse here from Hezekiah, which is almost this tone of, I'm proud of what I did. I was really impressed with these people and they were very nice to me. So I showed them everything. And so there's just this desire to please. So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that's in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Shows them all of his success. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. All that stuff you think you own, you don't own it. The perception of the world is you do, but at the end of the day, it can be taken away in a day. And so there's this idea that I think has Isaiah, you know, God asks for kind of a heart check or honesty and Hezekiah is honest, but he doesn't understand what he just did wrong. Like there's still that tone there that he thinks he's done. He just invited an invasion force after beating another of the Assyrians came with ugly Babylon comes with friendly, but they're both invasion forces and they're both a threat to Israel. Much of what Hezekiah clears out and hands over um, is just going to go right over to Babylon, even though he had offered them to Assyria, Babylon's going to take them without the offer. Verse 18, they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So part of, I think, this idea that Hezekiah was going to die without any heirs to the throne, that that might have been what made him upset, but here we are. We've got a few different people and there's multiple sons who will descend from you. So there's a promise that he's going to have sons and those sons will be taken away. Isaiah speaks for God in the idea that Hezekiah was prideful in hosting the enemy in this way. And and that's what we would call the pride of life. He was proud of everything he accomplished. And in that, God's going to take him down a notch. There's no opportunity for Hezekiah to repent. Like God brings this consequence without a timeline of repentance or an opportunity to repent. And I think part of that is that Hezekiah knew better, but we're not told that he knows better. We're, to, we're just told that he made this mistake. Again, for the writer of Kings, it's to see that Hezekiah wasn't perfect. And I'm going to go back to, he could have shown them God's word. You think what we did against the Assyrians was amazing? Guess why that happened. Let me explain to you how our God works and how our God operates. Our God's above your God. Our God's greater than your God. He could have said the exact same things to Babylon that he said to Assyria. With Assyria, he was blessed. With Babylon, he's not. And I think this comes down to sometimes when we're trying to please people, we don't want to talk about things of the spirit because we don't want to shoo off that new friendship. And I think from God's perspective, like, do you want that friendship anyways? If talking about the things of the spirit is going to scare that person away, do you really want that relationship? Maybe if you start relationships by putting God out in front, you actually build better relationships and that you're actually blessed when you do that. So he could have explained the feasts. I love explaining the feasts. He could have explained the law. I, David delighted at the law. This law is a good law. And Babylon's known for having an extensive legal code. They would have actually had great legal conversations. He could have talked about a little bit about God's promises, about the history of Israel. He could have talked about their history with them and shown them how God has done this all through history. He's blessed this nation. And the reason Assyria is over there in that giant grave we dug is because God's not, he's going to keep his promises. That would have warned Babylon off. 
Like maybe we shouldn't attack Jerusalem. Maybe that's a special city to the God Almighty. Maybe we should back off. But instead he shows them himself and they're like, well, we can take this guy. Assyria is just messed up. So we think it's our job sometimes to impress the ungodly. It's not. It's their job to impress God. It's never our job to impress other people. It's our job to point people to the God who's worthy of being impressed. And so understanding that right thinking, that right relationship, is a path to godliness that Hezekiah screws up. I think it's easy to read this and go like, what did he do wrong? Why is this such a bad thing? But again, biblically, there's not a lot left out in life. God kind of addresses every little situation with these kinds of stories. Verse 19, So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at last in my, at least in my days? His reception is one of acceptance. I think there's a bit of Hezekiah clearly understands he did so. He doesn't argue with Isaiah. There's a humility to his response. But some people read the idea that it's entirely about himself. That maybe in his old age he's fallen into, hey, well, can I at least live out my days in peace? Would that be okay? Um, it could be a fault of selfishness here too, but again, the Bible doesn't give a lot of commentary on that. Second Kings 24, just a preview. Nebuchadnezzar is going to read the accounts of these ambassadors that detailed everything in the house, and he will measure very carefully that the cost of waging an attack on Jerusalem is worth the benefit in these storehouses. So it is the reports of these this treasure trove that's waiting that makes the effort to walk over there and steal it worth the effort for Babylon. Um, and they eventually do get all the loot. All of Isaiah's prophecies come true. Uh, and we just have to get to chapter 24 and 25 to see that. The death of Hezekiah. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. The tunnel they're talking about there is the one we mentioned last week. That's Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, they're bragging about it because it's an amazing feat of engineering. Um, and it's still there today. If you go to Israel, you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, I gave a lot more details on that last week, so I'll leave that be. Verse 21, so Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Notice that it says rested. Um, this idea of death is not something that the godly need to be fearful of, even in the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's a way to say that he died, but it's not really death for the holy. It's sleep. It's, it's a period of rest before we're awakened again. Uh, in the end, we have a godly king that makes some mistakes. In the end, Hezekiah is an awesome example, one of the best examples we have. We will cover him again in Chronicles, and most of the book of Isaiah, the prophecies are about Hezekiah. We get a lot more Hezekiah in the Bible. Um, and like David, he repents when he's done something wrong. So he's made right with God, and he dies with this kind of good report. All right, it's a quick one. I'll move fairly quick in this chapter. Verse 1. Uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hepzibah. Um, we're going to see that God allows long reigns despite very evil kings. That is part of God lifting his hand and blessing off a nation. You get very bad leaders that stay for a very long time. Verse 2, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Uh, that would be the Canaanites. Remember, he cast them out for these practices. Uh, for he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image. 
as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. That's a reference to the religion of Babylon. That Part of that friendship with the Babylonians was he was learning about their religion, not the other way around. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So, This is the worst we've seen. Like, this is worse than Ahab. It's worse than Jeroboam. He's like taking all the badness of the past kings, putting them all together in one economy package and delivering them to the people of Israel. And he's the son of Hezekiah. So, but as a little 12-year-old, maybe he was enchanted with these visitors from Babylon too because this idea of the hosts of heaven was definitely a concept that's kind of new to the Bible but not like it's coming in from that tradition and culture. So this relationship with Babylon has some kind of influence on on Manasseh, uh, and it's not a good influence. Uh, He built altars to the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. That's the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. So he's putting up false altars in the temple courtyard. This is just crossing a line. Um, He's doing it all. He's essentially going polytheistic. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord. This is nasty because the practices at those altars was nasty. And we've gone through some of that before. Um, This is a new evil. It's the evil of Assyria and Babylon, this idea that all these religions can live inside of one house, that they are not contradictory to each other. And so this is, with Assyria, I joke that it's like the coexist bumper sticker. This is just like adding another letter to it when you add Babylon. It's coexisty. And it's just this idea that everything can kind of fit with Yahweh. And Yahweh likes to be, he's a jealous God. He doesn't believe in that. And he doesn't want his followers to either. Um, But it is important to understand that part of the rise of Babylon was a rise in humanism. Humans are the center of everything. You can do whatever you want. Just don't claim truth and exclusivity to God alone. And that was kind of this Babylonian, Assyrian kind of thing. Um, You find your bliss, do it any way you want to, um, and be selfish about it, even if your bliss is hurting other people. As long as you're more powerful than the other people, then you can hurt them. And so this was Babylonian religion. It goes all the way through the Romans. It goes all the way to the United States of America. Do whatever you want to do. Find your own bliss, even if you have to kill babies to do it. Right? It doesn't matter who you hurt. It just matters that you find your happiness and truth. And that belief is definitely part of what you read when you look at Babylonian religions. They added some cool-like stuff, which we'll get into. This whole cyclical life thing, the Babylonians like really liked animals that shed their skin, and they worshipped them of all sorts and kinds. So this renewal-rebirth thing, the circleness of life, that's kind of a Babylonia is where we first see those beliefs come into humanity. They're kind of twisted because the practices get weird. Verse 6, also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. Wow, it's like you're getting a whole playing deck full of evil with this guy. He's doing it all. Um, The Bible clusters these things, and I think there's better passages to break down each one of them. Let's just say this. There's nothing new under the sun. I think we live in a culture where people think that being edgy and doing this weird stuff, they're just doing something new. Like witchcraft has been around for thousands of years. It's not new and edgy. It's retrograde. Like you're going backwards when you do this stuff. Soothsaying is like fortune tellers. I'm going to go see a fortune teller on my, 
on a party night with my friends just for fun. This isn't fun. This is stuff you don't play with. And so as we see this happening with this king, they're inviting spiritual possession into their life. And the king of Israel is doing that. This is not, God's not going to smile on this. The summary from the writers, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he even set a carved image, like this is, they keep getting worse. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made. He made it with his own hands. What's an image of Asherah? It's a naked woman. Like Asherah, think of that as just the precursor to pornography. They put up these temples and statues so guys could look at them. So he made one with his own hands. Like he's really into this stuff. He's 12 too. Like let's think of like where he's at. And and in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Like the writers are making the point of just how horrific this is. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. The writers make this really easy for me as a teacher because they give the Old Testament quote, right? They're quoting the law here. God made a promise that they would never lose their country if they stuck to the laws God gave them. So as Manasseh breaks these, the writers point out to us in 7 and 8, like God kept his end of the promise all the way through Israel's history and Judah still remains. This city was literally the only city left from the Assyrian context and God protected it. But as Manasseh puts idols in the temple courtyard, the condition's been broken, but not by God. And I think the writer, like this is important, God never abandoned his promises. And I think that's the struggle they're having after they've been carried away by Babylon, after the conquest. Where's God when we need him? We lost Jerusalem. They're having a crisis of faith, and these writers are putting their records together to say, don't have a crisis of faith. We lost our country because this happened, and God kept his promise. And again, we bring this to the New Testament, God made promises to us. And so if we keep our end of the bargain, God promises to keep his end of the bargain. We don't have to doubt what happens after we die. If we stay faithful, God will stay faithful on his end. So they break the covenant, the covenant that specifically said you won't lose this city, as long as you keep my law, well, they don't keep the law, which means that city's up for grabs now. So the covenant's been broken. Um, verse 9, but they paid no attention. Notice the plural in there. This isn't just Manasseh. This is the people of Israel going, yeah, 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 bring in all these foreign religions. This is awesome. We will all live together in peace and harmony. Let's just even put them in God's temple. Like it's not just God's temple. There's room for the world in there too. It's not exclusive. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. If God doesn't punish Israel, I think this is an interesting point by the writers. In verse 9, if God had the Canaanites get pushed out of the land because of their evils, it would be totally unjust for him to let Israel keep that land and not give them the exact same consequence, wouldn't it? So if they've done even worse than the Canaanites and God makes an exception for them, what kind of God is this? Just makes up, he plays favorites? And so it's interesting that I think there's an attention and a regard for God that there is a spirit of justice that God's going to carry out what he says he will for the people that do wrong. Verse 10, 
And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with idols. It, in case this isn't clear, we're dealing with the despondent Israelis here. Why, is the, why did such bad things happen to us? Why did we lose our country? And the writer's just again and again nailing this point, like, because you were worse and you did evil, and so God deals with evil. Verse 12, therefore says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. Ears tingling. Every mention of ears tingling in the Bible is bad. It is always the case that when both ears tingle, God's judgment is coming. And so there's a promise here, like, here, thus says the Lord, there is judgment coming. First Samuel 3, you'll see another example of ears tingling. It will be known, and I think this is in, in, God will be revered. He'll either be revered in blessing those that keep his law, or he will be revealed in, revered in punishing people that claim to keep his law but don't. I want to be on the blessing side of that, so I want to be without hypocrisy, seeking holiness with everything I got. But I don't want to claim the name of Jesus and then go compromise and sin and put idols in my house. I don't want to do that. Because if I do that, God will be honored and revered, and he will not let false witnesses destroy his credibility. If he doesn't deal with Israel, what is he saying about holiness? That you can just compromise whenever you feel like it? The measuring line. He uses ideas that come from construction. The measuring line and the plummet. A measuring line takes horizontal measure. The plummet takes vertical measure. And you can get a perfectly straight line. And a measuring line gives you perfect distances across. This is important. God's consequences are perfect. He will deal them out appropriately and accurately. I take hope in this. If you want to find hope in this curse message. My hope is that. Okay, if that's true, and Jesus has thrown my sins as far as the east is from the west, that's an unmeasurable distance. If God measures consequence, and, and Jesus has eradicated my sin, it won't be measured. Because when justice is being dealt, God will not be called unjust. He is just in nature. The measuring line is a standard that when idolatry comes into play, this is how nations are treated. If your nation starts to do this, your nation will lose its strength and power quickly. I'll wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. <laughs> I think God's nothing if not poetic, right? Even today, we know what wiping a dish is. Everyone does. Like, it's a common image that we have. And if you're wiping a dish that's gone, like you're doing hand dishes, and you feel a little chunk stuck on that thing, what do you do naturally? You scrape it. Like, you want to feel that dish nice and smooth. There's no stuck food on there. Like, not everybody has a dog to lick their dishes. But when Timber's licking a dish, he won't stop till he gets that thing off. And idolatry is like a piece of crud stuck to the dish. Nobody wants to eat off that dish. If you've got sin in your life, God is going to clean it for righteousness sake or for justice sake. But at the end of the day, that's the whole point of judgment is God will clean the dish and he's going to get it. My hope is if I rinse it good with the blood of Jesus, he doesn't have to do that because it's already, Jesus can be like, look, I cleaned this dish and Jesus cleans dishes perfectly. He doesn't screw that up. 
the measuring line, the plummet line. Samaria has already been wiped off the face of the earth. They were carried away by the Assyrians. That's the measuring line. That's what I do with this kind of idolatry. What's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem? They're going to get carried away by the Babylonians. Same consequence. The plummet of the house of Ahab. How deep did Ahab go? What happened to the house of Ahab? It was wiped off the face of the earth. There's a depth here, though, that Manasseh's tradition will not continue with Jerusalem. Here's the cool part about going to Babylon for a number of years, a few decades. They don't go back to idol worship. Like, the Jews as a people since Babylon have never gone back to the kind of idol worship that we see with Manasseh. He does clean the dish. They do get rid of it. However, he's not going to wipe out the house like he did with Ahab because there's a promise that comes through David's line. And that promise is something God will keep. But the plummet line is still there, right? God provides, and here's the other thing with wiping dishes. I think this is a nice thought. If you wipe dishes, it's because you love clean dishes, right? You don't wipe a dish that you don't care about. You put it on the shooting range and shatter it into a billion pieces. If you're wiping a dish, it's because you love the dish and you want to keep it and reuse it. I think God loves Israel. He even loves the city of Jerusalem. He loves these people, these stubborn people. And he wants them to be clean and righteous because if they can do it, we can do it. If Jesus can show mercy and grace to the Jewish people that do what Manasseh just did, he can show mercy and grace to us. And he wouldn't clean the dish if he didn't love the dish. So it's this image of tenderness and care at the same time as being an image of just hating the goop that gets stuck on people. I like that. I, I think that's just a, again, I love the poetic writing when it nails like that. Wiping it and turning it upside down, just carefully doing every part of it. It's not just the part of the plate that shows, it's also the under part. And God wants our outside and our inside to both be clean. So he's going to turn us over and flip us and inspect us and help us to grow. Verse 14, so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. You're bragging about all your plunder? Guess what? You're going to be the plunder. That's pretty just. To forsake there, the word there is not the same one that Jesus used on the cross. The word forsake there is the word that gets used when you skin an animal in order to get to the meat. So when they, the idea of forsaking is to shed off or to peel the meat off a beast so that you're preparing it for use. And so that's the idea of this idea of idolatry. It's got to come off Israel. It's got to just get scraped off. Uh, and, and knowing this firsthand now and vividly, when you peel the skin off a deer, it comes in one big piece. Like, it, it's not pretty. It's an ugly thing to look at. It made me a little queasy when I saw it. Um, but I tell you, I love eating the meat, too. Looking at Grant, Grant was just like, whoa. But when they take it off, they cut the head, and they literally pull the whole thing down. And <laughs> one big motion. It's like pulling off a pair of pants. And when you talk about forsaking... So I will pull off the pants of the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies so they shall become victims of plunder to enemies. I'm going to get this idolatry and just, I'm going to shed it. I'm going to skin it from these people. Because they've done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. 15 is an important verse. It's not just Manasseh. It's been the whole history of humanity. The whole history of Israel, God did so many things to bring them about. They've just continually screwed it up. 
I think that's one kind of question. Why do humans keep walking away from a good and holy God that keeps his promises? And I think for God, that's got to be frustrating. Verse 15 expresses just a little bit of that frustration. These people just keep doing this. Verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. That's because that's part of those rituals with those religions. Um, Till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Innocent blood implies human sacrifice, either kids or babies to Moloch. Um, But there was also a growing religion where they would give adults as human sacrifices at this time too. So the idea that... um, There's an innocent blood being shed is either in light of children, but it can also be in light of these adults that adhered to or kept the word of God. So the people of God, the remnant of God, was being attacked or killed despite the fact that they were innocent before God. Um, And that would be to Chemosh, right? Chemosh took adult sacrifices. Babylonian religion had no issues with sacrificing their enemies. Again, we all can coexist, but we're going to kill people that don't agree with that. Right? And that's like, we think cancel culture is bad. That's cancel culture. Like, that's how bad humans get. At some point, there is no tolerance for the godly, and they'll go after him. So, Manasseh not only adds to that, but you can see he builds. First, he allows it, then he starts doing it, then he's making his own statues, then he's killing innocent people. And there is a progression to this. As evil gains power, it gets worse and worse and worse until killing starts happening. And we've seen that pattern throughout human history. And God has to ask, why do humans keep doing this over and over and over again? What was evil in his sight? Evil is tolerated in verse 3. It's worshipped in verse 3. It's compromising God's name in verse 4. It profanes the house of God, verse 7. Like, you don't even have the right to control your churches. Full-on demonic invitations, verse 6, by spiritism and all that sort of thing. Then hurting innocent people by verse 13. Do you see the progression? Just gets worse. It all leads back to God's love, however. It's one thing to hurt yourself. It's another thing to have civic policy that hurts the innocent. This is when God intervened with Egypt. It's when he's going to intervene with Assyria. And it's when he's going to intervene later with Babylon and later with Persia. There will be many attempts to wipe out the Jewish people, but when innocent people start getting killed, God starts to act. And the first things he does is he removes his hand of blessing. And so you see more natural disasters. You see more humans doing more nasty things. You see more chaos and lawlessness. And Jesus even says before the end, you're going to have kids that don't like their parents. Right? That, like suddenly you're going to have generations of kids that don't respect and regard their elders. Now I'm thinking, boy, I see a lot of that. It all leads back to God's love. He's going to protect the innocent. And he won't allow that to happen for long. Verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? The answer is yes, they are. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and then his son Ammon reigned in his place. This is fascinating. Most of these kings were buried with their fathers, right? We've seen that over and over and over again. The fact that he's buried in his garden says that even in his death, he wanted nothing to do with Yahweh or Yahweh's traditions. Like he was outright defiant. Um, So he's a bad guy. We can move on. Um, But we know God's plan. We'll keep tracking it. Clearly, Manasseh was not the Messiah, right? He did everything evil. Um, Then you get to Ammon. 
He was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, oh my, Meshulameth. So she was a meth addict. The daughter of Heraz and Jatba. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. In other words, he's doing the same thing, uh, all the same stuff. The writers, thankfully, don't rewrite it all because they just wrote it for Manasseh. This is the bad stuff. It keeps going. So he walked in all the ways of his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father served, and he worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers. He did not walk in the way of the Lord. No repentance from this guy, but God's promises are still coming. The timeline, the delay is mercy. There's time to repent. Um, Amon does not repent. Then the servants of Amon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Amon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah the king in his place. No record of why we get very little on Amon. Um, And we just see that there's bad people that kill Amon. We don't know that they're kind of people that are waiting for this young Josiah to take office because maybe he's more godly. So we don't have any record of who killed him or why. What we do get is that this is a horrible guy for two years. And after two years, somebody takes him out. Evil knows how to destroy things, not necessarily how to give life. Then the people of the land. This is unlike the northern kingdom. The dynasty never changes in the southern kingdom. So for some reason, even though they hated Amon and they killed him, they let his son be put on the throne. That's crazy. Like in the northern kingdom, when they wiped out a dynasty, they wiped out the dynasty, right? All the sons got killed. But in Judah, it doesn't work that way at all. The servants of Amon conspired to kill him and killed him in his own house, but then they put his son on the throne. Why? No story, no narrative. This is on my list. I got a long list of what I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. What happened with this Amon situation? Like, I wanted more story here. It's not the point of the book, so they don't give me more story. So I'm not going to pretend. But I think there's a huge, like, interesting story that's going on there. But we get Josiah to be king in his place. And now the rest of the acts of Amon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And he was buried in the tomb, in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. So this is the second person buried outside of the tomb of their fathers. Um, Some people believe that's because the tomb space was filling up around Jerusalem. Nonsense. The king of Israel gets buried where the king of Israel wants to be buried. They didn't want to be buried in David's plot. They didn't want anything to do with that history. So they choose to get buried in their own garden in Uzzah. That's not because they ran out of tombs. You got enough money, you can get buried where you want to get buried. And these guys had that position. Then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. So I got, thanks for getting through this chapter because it's a bummer of a chapter. Next week we get to Josiah, another godly king, another king who tries to bring Judah back. Um, At this point, Judah has um, crossed a line with the temple. And it seems to me that God has made this promise that those riches and those things that Hezekiah was so proud of, they're going to get carried away by Babylon. We've been introduced to Babylon. So it's God's already got the wheels turning for Judah to be evaporated for a season, but that doesn't mean God doesn't still love Jerusalem and doesn't still love the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. So we'll get next week we'll get to Josiah, um, uh, just another great example of a godly king, and we'll keep bouncing back and forth with Judah until they until their time is up. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you teach us. And some of these lessons are hard. Some of them are easy. Some of them are assuring. Some of them make us think. 
Lord, we just love what your word does to our hearts. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters that want to study his word together, uh, that we come together in your name, God. We don't do it for ourselves. We do it because we love you. We do it because we want to honor you and we want your word in our heart and we, and we want you to change us. Lord, take every lesson we get from this scripture and Lord, I, I just pray that people are studying this just as, as much as they can, Lord, so I don't get in the way of that lesson, uh, that the word speaks for itself. And Lord, may your word take the prominence in our life, uh, be a goal that we aspire to and Lord, help us to get ourselves out of the way so you can reign and you can rule. Like Hezekiah, we want to walk before you, Lord, without shame. Uh, we want you to, to understand that our heart has changed towards you because of your Holy Spirit. We want you to continue to do that work in our hearts. We open our lives to you. We submit to you. Um, we want you to be our king. And to do that, we need to know your rule and your law. So, Lord, help us to walk before you in such a way that we can appeal to you in all things, even in our bitterness in our frustration when we don't understand what you're doing, Lord, help us to have faith that you know what you're doing and that we need to change how we see and how we hear in order to understand your will in our life. Lord, teach us your ways. May we be giving honor to you with our lives. May people look at our lives, hear our words, and see our works and understand that we're different because we serve a king. Um, and we serve a king that loves and has a compassion and a care for people. Lord, help us to be bold in our faith unapologetic in our faith and completely dedicated and wholly devoted to you with our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.